0: This week's episode of Powderkeg is brought to you by Developer Town. By leveraging their years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. Developer Town has created proven sprint-to-market processes so large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more at developertown.com slash powderkeg. Again, that's developertown.com slash powderkeg. Developer Town. Start something.
1: An outsider will often look at an industry and not realize that they might be walking into buzzsaw of something that just would be catastrophic for them and they're just not even aware because they don't know. Versus a disruptor is really taking a different approach that removes the competitive advantages that the incumbents might have.
0: That's Dave Knox. He's a venture investor, brand marketer, and startup advisor. In the startup culture that emanates from Silicon Valley, you hear the word disrupt thrown around a lot. But Dave has a very unique and fresh perspective on what it takes to really disrupt an industry. You see, Dave is a managing director at WPP Ventures, so he's a venture capitalist. But he's also led brand marketing at companies like Rockfish Interactive and Procter & Gamble or P&G. He's also the co-founder of the Brandery Startup Accelerator in Cincinnati, Ohio. And In this conversation with Dave, you're going to learn why market leaders often know their problems but don't know how to fix them. You're also going to find out how disruptors give themselves an unfair advantage, but you're also going to go into a little bit of the corporate venture capital game and why this is the new R&D or research and development for big companies. We are going to get into so much in this interview. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 30 of Powder Keg: Igniting Startups, a show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators who are building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley, like Cincinnati, for instance. Yes, Cincinnati is a huge hub of entrepreneurship. With headquarters for large public companies like Procter & Gamble and notable presences of other large corporations like General Electric or GE, there is a huge amount of history in Cincinnati that has led to this sort of entrepreneurial renaissance. And a lot of this took place in the area called Over the Rhine or OTR or also sometimes known as the Digital Rhine. And it's really cool to see organizations like the Brandery, Queen City Angels, and Vine Street Ventures invest. Investing in a lot of these companies locally at the angel level. But you also have a lot of public and private partnerships like Centrifuge and Cincy Tech. Uh, these programs investing back into these tech companies. There are accelerator programs like The Brandery and Ocean. And you also have programs like Mortar that enable underserved entrepreneurs and businesses to succeed, creating tons of opportunities for building communities through entrepreneurship. When you step back and look at it, you can see that the entrepreneurial spirit is soaring in Cincinnati. In fact, when Dave Knox called us, he was calling in from a Cincinnati-based brewery named Braxton Brewing Company. And I'll tell you what, Dave really brought the goods in this interview. Enjoy. Dave, thanks so much for being here, man. Hey, thank you. I'm honored to be here. It has been a long time since uh, since we talked, a long, t- you know, a long time to me anyway. Where are you tuning in from right now? So I am tuning in from uh, the... Cross
1: the river, the Brooklyn of Cincinnati, which is uh, Covington, Kentucky, at uh, Braxton Brewing right now.
0: Tell me a little bit about Braxton, because I've, I've been following the story in my social media feed, um, but I would love to just kind of get the, the flyover. What is Braxton?
1: Yeah, so uh, Braxton is a brewery that was started about two years ago now, and it's got uh, very strong roots in Indianapolis, actually. It was uh, started by Jake Rouse, who is a former Exact Target employee. And his head of marketing uh, is Jonathan Gandolf, who's also a, a Exact Target alumni. It is kind of capitalizing on this great brewing heritage that we have in Cincinnati. You know, if you look back 100 years ago before Prohibition, uh, Cincinnati was actually the largest producer of beer in the uh, entire United States. But Prohibition put a pretty big dent on that. But now we're uh, thriving with some really great breweries and uh, a really tight tie to the entrepreneurial community as well, which is pretty fun.
0: Well, it's it's really cool what has happened in Cincinnati to you know, watch the work that you've done there and, and all the companies that you've been involved with in Cincinnati, it, you know, through the Brandery Accelerator and everything else you're doing now with WPP Ventures. Uh, I want to make sure we dive into all of that. I'd love to get just a little bit of Dave Knox backstory because uh, I don't know that you and I have actually had a chance to talk about it. How did, uh, how did this whole Cincinnati startup focus start with you and, and how long ago did that start? Yeah, it really started uh, back in my days at Procter
1: & Gamble. Uh, so I went into P&G right after uh, college at Miami University and was coming in as a 22-year-old into the brand management function. And this was back 2003. And at that time, you know, digital was something that people were a little bit scared of uh, because it was right after the dot-com crash and a lot of things had changed. And a lot of my peers, P&G generally hires mostly MBAs. Um, so I was the 22-year-old from an undergraduate public university. And I decided to kind of embrace the thing that others weren't sure what to do with. And so that really dove me in, into the world of uh, digital. And by nature, if you're talking 2003, there weren't a lot of big digital companies. It was a lot of startups and a lot of entrepreneurs. And that's really what start, kind of started that journey. And it culminated in... Uh, late 2008, uh, I actually got pulled in to be one of the founders of Proctor's corporate digital strategy team. And that kind of gave me the uh, the soapbox to really engage with the venture capital community, the emerging innovation with, you know, whether it was Facebook or Twitter or any of the kind of the emerging disruptors at the time. And with all that, I was going out to the Valley, doing a lot of engaging and coming back to Cincinnati and just kind of looking around and saying, you know we've got this amazing talent in the Midwest. Why don't we have the same community that I'm experiencing in San Francisco or Boulder, et cetera. And that's kind of what led me to the mission uh, along with some amazing co-founders to say, let's be part of the change instead of uh, just hoping somebody else changes it for us.
0: That's really cool. I, I, I think that that perspective of starting fresh out of college in in big corporate, that's a perspective that I, I don't have because I, I went straight from college where I was running a small company uh, down in Bloomington, Indiana, to going and joining a high growth cloud hosting startup and really never joined a team. you know basically once teams hit a hundred people, I kind of I kind of bailed. Um, so I'm curious to know if there are particular things that you learned you know from your vantage point, now in uh, in venture capital, what lessons did you learn in at P and G and some of the other big companies you've collaborated with? You know, later on with Rockfish Marketing, that gave you some perspective in what you do now with startups and and venture growth. Yeah, so I think the for me starting with that big company,
1: the most invaluable thing has really been the network. You know, in a lot of cases, a lot of folks go and you know you get your MBA from a place like Harvard or Wharton. And obviously, the classroom is amazing, and professors are, but it's your network that you come out of it that is really, really valuable. And for me, you know, going to p that was my network. And it's a place that has always been known for uh, grooming and training great leaders. And the change for me was it was a place I was actually being paid to be trained and paid to learn uh, because of how they did it. And, you know, if I fast forward to today, the alumni network of the guys that were just good buddies of mine because we work together, they are some of my most valuable uh, network fast forward to today. Um, you know, and a good example, you know, the chief marketing officer of Dollar Shave Club. You know, that's a great person in this industry that is truly changing what this, you know, disruption and innovation means. He was my backfill when I left Secret Deodorant. He took that, uh, the assistant brand manager job after me. So, that's the type of background and you know network that you really get that, for me, has been more valuable than really anything else, as I sit at this intersection of big brands and startups.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that uh, network is an interesting topic, right? Especially when you're talking about innovation outside of Silicon Valley. You know, I, I know that I've heard other entrepreneurs that aren't in Silicon Valley talk about, you know, I I need to move to Silicon Valley. That's where the network is. That's where investors are. That's where the people who are creating innovative technologies are. And, of of course, uh, you know me, Dave, uh, and I know you. And we, we might have some other things to say about that, that you can't get that network here in the Midwest. Obviously, you had P&G to kind of plug into, but what were some of the things that you did from a, a tactical standpoint and sort of from a strategic standpoint as you were building that network?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you, because I think it's, it's a cop out to say you have to go somewhere else. And I think the reason is that there's two types of communities. There's communities that you can plug and play into, and you step out your door and it's there. And that's right for some people. Uh, but there's others that like to be community builders and you know i think that's where you and i share a belief is we want to be part of the change and part building the community instead of just hoping somebody else does the hard work or somebody else did the hard work 10 years ago some people call us crazy for that but i actually think it's a lot more enjoyable so you know being part of if you're one of those that likes to build and to be part of that community and to drive that change I think there's a few different things you can do. One of the things I encourage everyone to do is uh, there's a book called Get Lucky, and it was actually written by uh, two good friends of mine who were the founders of Get Satisfaction, and they talked about how can you build serendipity into your life uh, when it comes to business, and they've got some great kind of ch- uh, recommendations and suggestions. But one of their concepts they talk about is this concept of motion, and The fact of if if every day looks the same in terms of where you go, where you interact and the people you spend your time with, you're never going to have a network that builds. Um, You're going to have the same network and that's it. But if you can put yourself into a place where it's almost planned serendipity, that you interact with different audiences and people and other things, that's how you start building it. And it's something I very intentionally do in my life that, you know, every day I start uh, the day in a different coffee shop. And I do that because each coffee shop in a town almost has a different clientele. And it's a different uh, vertical that you end up with. You know, you've got the coffee shop where all the entrepreneurs hang out. You have the one where it's more for the politicians. You have the one where all the big brand marketers go to get their morning coffee. And putting yourself in those different places that motion by itself almost forces that engagement and that network building.
0: That's a really great point. I love that. Uh, I love that practice. You, you do that every morning. Pretty much every morning.
1: There is, a, you know, I one of my uh, colleagues at Rockfish. She always jokes. She'll call me about about nine forty-five uh, most mornings, and she'll say, "I know you just got done with your morning coffees, so I can uh, get a hold of you now."
0: <laughs> That's great. That's great that you're um, predictably unpredictable. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's cool. Um, well, I, I want to kind of dive back into uh, and dig in a little deeper on uh, your experience at PNG and and working with some of the larger brands because uh, you include so many really great stories and anecdotes in your recent book. Uh, congratulations, by the way, uh, Predicting the Turn has been making waves. I know you were just in Indianapolis talking with the High Alpha crew. I, I've been following you on social media and all the other people who are reading the book. So I, w- I definitely want to dive into that. One of the quotes that you included in the very first section, I I wanted to kind of get your off-the-cuff thoughts on that, because this is a quote from Naval Ravikant, co-founder of AngelList, and the, the quote is, "...tech companies will eventually displace the majority of the Fortune 500. Competing without software is like competing without electricity." and. I love that quote. I'm curious if you've got sort of a perspective or a general feeling that you've gotten as you've communicated to that, some of the fortune 500 companies that you've worked with, or some of the people at the fortune 500 companies you've worked with. Yeah. You know, in a lot of cases, it's actually reinforcing to most
1: of the fortune 500 that it's actually the mindset that all their predecessors had. Because if you look at the majority of the companies that today are at the top of their business most of them look nothing to like today that they were back then you know if you look over the history of american express you know they're a fintech company now but they were you know basically playing in the days of almost pony express back in the day you know a very very different industry and you know general electric the same thing you know the company for all the things that they do you know they're not the the electric uh, necessarily that they were back then. So today's corporate leaders are ones that had to reinvent themselves time and time again over history. But today it's actually about the speed is happening more dramatically than I think they ever had to deal with in the past. And it's just that realization of, no, we have to get out of our comfort space and remember the foundation of the heritage that actually caused us to get to where we are today. We got to go back to that. And some of them don't get that. And some of them are afraid to do it, but in a bad, a difficult place to do it as well, because you have the rise of, you know, activist investors and things like 3G capital that a lot of them know they're only you know, one missed step away from uh, their world changing dramatically. So it's a tough environment in many, many ways.
0: We had Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown, co-founders of growthhackers.com and startupmarketing.com and and their new book, book, Hacking Growth. And what you just said really kind of reiterates what they shared, which is if you're a small company and you're not moving and making changes super fast, you're not using your greatest competitive advantage, which is that ability to pivot on a dime, shift really quickly and uh, and make those quick decisions. What are some of the ways that you've seen big companies do that effectively? Or on the flip side, what are some of the ways you've seen big companies fail to uh, make that transition?
1: Yeah, I think one of the examples I love to use is uh, Amazon. So if you look from a market cap standpoint, you know Amazon's one of the most valuable companies in the world. And that means it's one of the largest companies in the world at the same token. Uh, Yet Bezos is a very much a leader that believes in this concept of change. And, you know, one of the things he said is, you know, he has no issue with finding a great idea from an entrepreneur and then putting the Amazon spin on it. So actually in my book, I talk about this concept of disrupt the disruptor. And it's this whole premise that, if you look at a big company, they actually have ridiculous advantages to leverage an innovation. Let's play same-day delivery. Two years ago, the company Delive raised a lot of money, uh, partnered with you know, all the mall operators and uh, UPS to strategic investment. But they had to go off and they had to find entrepreneurs that believed in them and employees. They had to find investors that believed in them. They had to go – built the product, they had to go build the expertise, they had to go find the customers. They had all of these steps to do to do the concept of same-day delivery. The flip side is Jeff Bezos walked into his logistics team uh, when he saw Deliver and others uh, starting to make waves, and he said, I want to be in market in four months with our own offering for same-day delivery. And he had the advantage of they had plenty of money. He had warehouses across the U.S. and the major metropolitan areas to do it. He had the supplier relationships, and he had some of the brightest minds in logistics in the world. And he was able to launch uh, Amazon Prime now in a matter of four months because of that and is now one of the leaders. They didn't invent the concept of same-day delivery. That wasn't some idea he walked out of the shower and said, let's go do this. He saw an inspiration. He took it, and he put the Amazon spin on it. And the thing he had got out of his own way on was speed. And that's where I think a lot of the, the biggest companies are falling down is they overthink it instead of just doing it.
0: Mm, I like that a lot, and probably a lot of uh, a lot of people that are listening that are big corporates are like, "Hey, that's that's a really great point. We we have the resources, we have the ability. We just need the culture that can go attack that." And then I put my startup founder hat on, and that's terrifying to me, right? As as someone that could be disrupted, you know, and I'm disrupting in my own industry right now, and I'm the startup. I'd be very scared that an Amazon or a company of similar scale could come in and disrupt me. What are some of the things that startups can do to make themselves less likely to become disrupted after, you know, kind of entering the industry and being the tip of the spear in their industry? Yeah, I think the the key is they need to not attack
1: uh, these uh, these incumbents head on. They need to find one of their own kind of ways to go about it and go off and... Build. And I think one of the things that we've almost done a disservice as entrepreneurs is this celebration of how much money we've raised and all of this press of, I, you know, your mission is to get on TechCrunch and brag about the size of the round that you did and everything else. Anytime you do that, all you're doing is giving your competition insight into your business and awareness of what's going on with you. Y'all you know, never forget one of the things that uh, Scott Dorsey once told me, and I'm not even sure if he remembers saying it. Is he said the best advantage of me being in the Midwest in Indianapolis is before by the time anybody realized what I'd built, I already had such a head start on them, and I was in a dominant position to keep doing it. That's why I think we forget sometimes as entrepreneurs is. Just focus on building a great business. Stop playing the game of entrepreneur and being proud of the awards that you won, the headlines that you got, the amount of money that you raised, because it can actually at times be detrimental to you.
0: Yeah, that is a really great point. And, and of course, the, you know, those company awards and fundraising announcements uh, can be helpful sometimes in attracting talent or helping land a partner. But the flip side of that, and what I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, is that you're kind of tipping off all of your competitors or potential competitors that you're being really successful in an industry and that maybe they should look at that industry or that angle on the industry as well. Yep, that's exactly it. So you need to balance the line.
1: You know, There are reasons to do it, and you find the right ones to do. So you can get the talent, you can do all of that, but just don't do it just for doing it. Uh, and if all you can do is brag about the headline, if your board, your board updates are focused on the awards that you've won or the headlines that you've gotten, you're probably doing it wrong.
0: Well, and it is cool to see more venture capital going into areas outside of Silicon Valley, into companies that are doing innovative things uh, all over the country and all over the world. One of the things that I've heard you say, Dave, that I really uh, appreciate and would love to get a little more perspective on is venture capital has become sort of a new R&D budget for big companies. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you mean by that when, you, uh, when you've tweeted that out in the past? I'll
1: start with the stats because I think it gets really interesting to look. Is If you look at the amount of money that was spent in non-defense R&D spending in the entire U.S., it hasn't really changed between the 1970s and today. And what's crazy about that is you think about how big the business world has grown in that time. The delta, though, uh, is the fact that $50 billion was spent last year Uh, In venture capital, you know, invested into early stage startups. And the thing that results from that is if you look at, you know, how R&D spending is defined of those two things combined, back in the, I think, late 70s, only about 1% of R&D spending was spent by small companies, quote, unquote. Fast forward to today, and it's actually about 25% of R&D spending in the U.S. is by small companies. So you have this shift of R&D has gone from the halls of innovation, corporate innovation labs like Bell Labs or Xerox Park, and it's shifted into the halls of venture-funded startups.
0: So is there still a place for those innovation labs at big companies?
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's always a place for them, but it can't be shiny object labs. You know, I personally pray negative on just standing up an outpost in Silicon Valley. I think it's a cop-out. You know, instead, it's about figuring out what's the right strategy and what do you want to accomplish? You know, if you look, let's take Under Armour. Um, you know, I think what they're doing is really interesting with their connected fitness division. And that division's based in Austin, Texas, it's because that's what, where one of their digital acquisitions came from. I don't think anyone there says that's an innovation lab for them. But it is the place where all of the innovation of the future of that company is happening from a digital perspective. So there's an extreme power. It's why I'm such a believer in, you know, the studio model. Uh, whether that is a startup studio like High Alpha, whether that's a venture studio by a big company like, a place where you can create and build. That's really powerful. But it needs to be creating things that will move the business forward, not just shiny objects to check a box.
0: When you think about. Building things that move the business forward, whether you're a startup building something that you hope to be acquired or you're an internal innovation um, division of a company or whatever they call it at your company. how do you make sure that you are doing something that it, that you're building for the future and, and is really like a value add to a big organization? Uh, either long term or as an acquisition, as a startup.
1: Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of different ways to go about it, and it's I think part of it with any of the understanding for the big company, the startup, from innovation, whatever kind of word and buzz you want to use, uh, you have to start thinking about uh, culture from an early on standpoint and understanding the culture of what you're building in your startup, what the big company's culture is and how everything can be kind of wrapped up into one. Uh, so that's just one area that I focus on and think about a lot. Uh, and I think it's just, it's a moment in time also that I'm really living it to look at the culture conflicts ca- can exist with a lot of those type of things uh, from partnerships, investments, acquisitions or anything in between.
0: I'm curious, you know, as you've run the Brandery Startup Accelerator in Cincinnati and now uh, on the venture side with WPP, when you look at startups and their ability to disrupt incumbents using digital, what are the things that you look for in those startups to be like, yeah, that startup really has an opportunity to displace an incumbent? What, what's sort of the killer app or the angle uh, or secret sauce that you're looking for in those, whether it's in the founders or in the startup themselves?
1: Yeah, it's, I go back, there's a, a great quote that uh, Fred Wilson uh, from Union Square said, and he, you know, to paraphrase it, he basically said, whenever I see a new entrant coming around, I ask myself, are they uh, outsiders or are they disruptors? And what he means by that is an outsider will often look at an industry and not realize that they might be walking into buzzsaw of something that just would be catastrophic for them and they're just not even aware because they don't know versus a disruptor is really taking a different approach that removes the competitive advantages that the incumbents might have and so that's what I kind of look at when I look at these new companies are are they giving themselves an unfair advantage with how they approach the market and how they go about it because there's a lot of these legacy businesses where you just have a national almost inertia and things that are in place that you can't change i look at the early days of cpg you know what opened the door for a dollar shave club or a birch box it was the retailer relationships a png and a unilever and these biggest companies So much of their business was tied up with Walmart and Target and Kroger and the big retailers that if they turned around and started selling direct to consumers, that was a really, really awkward call to go have with your merchandiser. Walmart was responsible for 50 percent of your business. If you got called down to Bentonville, Arkansas, and you had to explain to them why you're now selling direct, that's a really, really tough conversation Uh, and one most people aren't willing to do. And so Dollar Shave had an unfair advantage because they didn't have to worry about that legacy and those relationships They they were essentially blowing up with their new business. So that's, that's the stuff I look at.
0: That's a great example. Could could you maybe give me an example of a company, maybe even an investment that you made or that you looked at where, and maybe you passed on it because, because of this reason that was looking at it looking at the industry as an outsider as opposed to a disruptor?
1: That is a great question. And uh, yeah, you'll learn investors don't like to look back and uh, too many of them uh, don't look at the things
0: they passed. This is uh, all in the spirit of, of everyone else learning from, uh, yeah. from, from past <laughs> mistakes. Yeah, no, the, the one I always joke with, uh, because they actually
1: happen to be two really good friends of mine, is uh, the guys from Everything But The House, uh, EBTH, uh, which is here in Cincinnati. So EBTH, uh, you know, they've now raised, uh, I forget the exact last quoted, but north of $50 billion of venture capital from some of the literally best investors in the country, uh, Spark Capital and Graycroft and Greenspring Associates. And they are building and uh, have built an amazing, amazing business that is truly disrupting estate sales. and. I met those guys the first time uh, when they were just getting business, going with the business. Um, They were taking what was, in many ways, a local Cincinnati lifestyle business, and they were coming in to actually help relaunch it and make it a scalable venture business. And I looked at it and said, I just, I'm not sure what their, what the plan is. I didn't know anything about estate sales. I didn't know how, how it worked. And I looked and said, well, this feels like it's just another eBay type thing. I'm not sure what they're doing here. That one has cost me, I didn't have an opportunity to invest at the time, but I should have been looking at that as an investment and throwing every dollar I ever could at it because it's become an amazing, amazing business.
0: So that was one that you did pass on because you thought they were approaching it as an outsider when in reality, it turns out They're, they're disrupting the industry.
1: You know, without it out, they have uh, disrupted in a big way.
0: Is there one that you did invest in or passed on, and you're kind of like, I'm glad I passed on that, or I wish I would have passed on that because they were approaching it as an outsider? The one that I don't think they were necessarily approaching it as an outsider, but we've
1: learned along the way is uh, Flight Car. So Flight Car was one of our true uh, great stories coming out of the brandry. You know, founded by. Yeah, founded by three 18 year eighteen-year-olds uh, that went and raised a lot of money uh, from some of the best investors in the world, from General Catalyst to Andreessen Horowitz, etc. You know, they were going after the sharing economy when it came to you know car rentals and airport car rentals in particular. And while they expanded and built a great business, I think there was an underestimating what uh, the power of corporate travel in particular and you know, becoming a new entrant to get permission to business travelers and others to start using your service. And there was a lot of things of how do you really drive that that I think with maybe a little bit more expertise of insider knowledge about how the car rental business has historically been structured actually might have really served uh, useful to make them a better disruptor.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I almost think that kind of to me, it reminds me of one of the quotes that was in your book from DHH, David Hanmeyer Hanson, uh, you know, from Basecamp. He said, the sooner you stop fighting the present, the sooner you can work on figuring out the future. In a lot of those cases, and maybe that's not the case with Flight Car, uh, that's the way I heard that story, is that they were almost like coming in to say, the present system doesn't work, how do we create something new? As opposed to saying how do we completely rethink this thing based on industry knowledge and based on what where we know this industry could go? Is that a fair assessment of sort of that anecdote? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And it's why, you know,
1: I really believe that disruptors, there's value of having expertise of industry experts that they bring almost, here's, ha- here's what we're fighting against. Uh, you know, it's that value of having the insider that can kind of say, Here's the game plan so you can then figure out how to defeat that game plan and go against it. So that's, I think, a real value across the board uh, to be able to look at. You know, If you're a disruptor, if you could kind of know the playbook your competitor is running with, there's a real value in that because then you can figure out how to go around them.
0: Really great point. I want to ask you one more question, Dave, before we uh, take a quick break. It's one that I've had for a long time, and I don't know why I haven't asked you this in the past. You had a, a great thing going with what you were doing at p I mean, you're at one of the largest companies in the world. You're in the most innovative department of that company. Why did you decide to make the move into startups and working with startups and starting the brandery uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's, uh, I, I have this saying I use all the time that your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for doing. And for me, I, uh, I kind of burned the, the ships at the same time. Uh, I turned 30 in July of 2010. And a month later is when uh, the first class of the brand started. And two months later is when I quit my job at P&G uh, to go be the CMO for Rockfish and open up our Cincinnati office. Uh, so I just decided to kind of go at it all at once. And for me, it was that point where I said, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to start betting on myself and start taking all of this that I've learned and see if I can really bet on my ability to move something forward. And Rockfish uh, was kind of that opportunity to be able to do that. And it's say, OK, let's open up this office in Cincinnati, um, You know, join a company that was about 60 people at the time. And see what we can do. And, you know, six years later, that company, you know, Cincinnati's now one of the largest offices and the company as a whole not only went through an acquisition, but we're about five times the size that we were when I joined. So it's been a pretty fun journey.
0: It's, it's, I love the spirit of that, Dave, and it's clearly um, paid off for you and was a, a very strategic bet to bet on yourself in that way. And I love that you use that language, bet on yourself, because I know the title of your book that you just came out with uh, is also a play on, uh, on poker analogies. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to dive into predicting the turn, the high-stakes game of business between startups and blue chips. More on that when we come back on Powder Keg. Thanks for listening to Powder Keg Igniting Startups. I wanted to take a minute to make sure you know that this episode is powered by Verge, a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley. Verge has hosted more than a thousand entrepreneurs to pitch their companies at our events around the world in cities like Indianapolis, Indiana, Kansas City, Missouri, and Nashville, Tennessee. Those founders have gone on to raise more than $500 million in capital collectively and are disrupting industries, creating wealth, and changing the world. These are their stories. And if you haven't subscribed to Powderkeg yet, it's not too late. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, And you can find all of the links to subscribe, as well as show notes and transcripts, at our website, powderkeg.com. So that's powderkeg, all one word, Com. And if you have an iTunes account, we created a handy link for you at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. That's going to take you directly to our show where you can subscribe, leave a review, and see all of the awesome episodes from past guests like Brian Clark at Rainmaker based in Boulder, Colorado, Karen Nortman at Upfront Ventures in Los Angeles, California, and Max Yoder at Lesson Lee in Indianapolis, Indiana. So again, that's powderkeg.com slash iTunes. Back to the show. And we're back with Dave Knox, uh, who's a venture capitalist at WPP Ventures, uh, as well as the author of the book, Predicting the Turn, which I'm very eager to talk about. One of the things you talk about in the book is the shift from digital marketing to digital business models. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and that shift that you see happening?
1: Yeah, without doubt. So this is one that's really inspired almost by the I don't want to say the mistakes that I personally made, but what we should have been doing a little bit different or in addition to. So when I was working on the uh, Procter & Gamble corporate digital strategy team, we were really focused on how do we make P&G and our marketers the best in class at digital marketing? So how do we learn search and content and social and everything else in between? But what we forgot to ask in that process was, how does digital actually fundamentally change the business that we're in? And what are the new models that come out of it and the new opportunities as a result of this thing of digital being created from scratch? You know, there's a guy, Ben Thompson, who his Stratechery work is some of my favorite out there. And he says, you know, if we look at the leveling, there's a leveling of the playing field coming out right now, because if you're in a world where shipping is free, shelf space is infinite, and advertising is measurable and cheap, those advantages of the Walmart relationships and the million-dollar TV budgets, those go away, and they're almost wasted dollars. And so that's, I think, this huge thing we need to be paying attention to is this reinvention of business that is starting from digital business models first and foremost, and digital marketing just happens to be one of the enablers of their business.
0: Oh that's a really um that's a really interesting perspective. When when you talk about these kind of new digital business models, are there certain archetypes or certain models that you've seen emerge that have just been kind of categorically opening? I mean, obviously there's sort of like this Uber for everything, right? business model. That's probably the most trite and overused one. Um are there ones that are there digital business models that you saw at P&G that were shifting the way P&G needed to do business? Yeah, I think
1: it's the The biggest thing is the rise of the, you know, as Andy from uh, Bonobos calls it, the digitally native vertical brand. You have an entire generation of the largest brands in the world. They were best in class at one, you know, usually two different things, building a great product and then marketing and demand generation that went around with that product. But none of them really had an expertise in distribution you know and you know they sold to their retailers but the retailers owned the end customer in many cases and so this whole rise of a digitally native vertical brand i think that is an amazing shift uh that is kind of coming about uh in a lot of different ways
0: well and you mentioned dollar shave club and bonobos are there some other ones that come to mind yeah i think you uh, go down the list you know
1: casper fits in that realm of a business that's all about that in a way you know honest company probably was at one point uh, they've shifted a little bit uh, in their model your know, warby parker definitely was you know there's a lot of businesses that almost every brand that we hold up today is like this amazing new consumer brand nearly every single one of them kind of at least started from an inspiration of this digitally native vertical brand.
0: And the, the digitally native vertical brand, in some of those case studies, if you're just reading the headlines and the articles on you know Forbes or Inc.com, it, it almost seems like they didn't engage with big companies up until the point where you know, Dollar Shave Club was acquired for a billion dollars. Why should startups and small companies engage with big companies early on beyond just the... Hey, we want to we acquire you and snap you up. Uh, what are some of the ways that these startup founders should maybe think about engaging with these bigger organizations? Yes, yeah, so I think there's a few different things.
1: Um, you know, one of it is, frankly, using it for their own market intelligence. You know, Engaging with a large company, it's a chance to almost put a face on them and humanize them. And, you know, you think of them as this mass, these massive companies with huge marketing budgets and so much an unfair advantage. And that interaction with them gives you a chance to learn more about them. You know, how do they think? How do they approach, you know, the thing you might be afraid of them one day competing with you on? Do they even think about that? You know, is it even on their radar? And those conversations, because I think can be as eye opening for you as it is for them in many cases. So I think that's that's one you know really, really big benefit.
0: As a startup founder, I might be a little nervous that me showing a big corporation like a Procter & Gamble or like a Salesforce even at an early stage might just give them a great idea for them to go execute on with all of their resources and energy. Um, similar to kind of what you were talking about before with the, the headlines tipping off these larger companies, how do you make sure when you have these conversations that you're not giving away your secret sauce or your competitive advantage.
1: You know, I think the key is you need to just be intelligent about it. You know, do not overshare and keep things close to vest without being arrogant approach every conversation with eyes wide open of there is a chance that they might decide to compete. So what are you sharing and what could, what should you not be giving away? And it's just being intelligent about your conversation and, Uh, not being an open book
0: when you don't have to be. That's a a really great piece of advice. Um, When you're kind of acquiring information from them and maybe trying to better understand some of their research and some of their experience in the industry, what are some of the other things that you should be looking to do in those early conversations with these big corporations and, and how should you be positioning those conversations?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I'd really be trying to find out is what is an area that they know they need to solve but they don't have the plans or even maybe even the knowledge to go off and share, solve them you know, generally in most cases you are not acquiring a comp- a big company is not acquiring a, comp- a company to take them off the table and remove a competitor um you know walmart didn't buy jet.com because they saw jet as a massive competition to them unilever didn't buy dollar shave because they saw them as a competitor what they're doing is they're acquiring holes in their portfolio or filling holes in their portfolio and bringing expertise that can really help them. You know, General Motors bought Cruise because of they knew they needed to bring this expertise in uh, autonomous vehicles, and they saw that as a solution. And so I think that's what you need to think about. Um, you know, the days are kind of gone where your likely acquirer is just buying you to take a competitor off the table. It's not about consolidation anymore. It's about innovation driven acquisition.
0: And in your experience, is it whole in the portfolio something that the large company is aware of, or is it something they become aware of as that startup gets traction, builds some new market share?
1: I think it's both actually. There will be pockets that definitely understand it. You know the concept of subscription commerce that was actually experimented with several times in the halls of the big CPG. It just never knew necessarily the right approach to do it, and you know they had those other barriers that I talked about. So a lot of the big companies know that things need to change, but they don't necessarily know how. Um, what I think does change is the consu- a belief that the consumer is ready to adopt that change. That's usually actually what's signaled by the success. And, uh, and results of one of those companies.
0: That's a great point. And it kind of goes back to your point. Venture capital is the new R&D budget <laughs> where these big companies are saying, hey, let's let's let the venture capitalists invest in these startups so that they can figure out this new model and figure out this new approach to the industry. And then when it's ready and it's all flushed out, we'll just go and acquire it. Yep,
1: yeah, that's exactly it. It's a uh, You know, there's a story I read a few years ago, and I always wish I could find the article again, but talked about Cisco and the fact that Cisco had, you know, three, you know, senior executives that had gone, and I think it was three different times, had left Cisco and built businesses, and then Cisco had bought them back for a large sum of money. And, you know, John Chambers as the CEO was talking that he was okay with it because, they were able to go take risks and do innovation that he knows they probably will have never been able to do inside. And the result of yes, they acquired them and they made those people, you know, a good amount of money. But those businesses they acquired were worth multitudes more than they ever paid for them, and were key building blocks for the entire company. So, I, the people with the right approach, um, you know, guys like Google and Amazon and others they definitely take the right approach with it and uh, pay magnitudes
0: of value because of it. That's a great, great case study with the Cisco example. And I love that you bring up Google because I know a lot of these large corporations now have corporate VC funds. You know, Google Ventures is a great example or Salesforce Ventures. We actually had uh, John Samorjai from Salesforce Ventures on episode six, I believe, of the Keg podcast talking about why Salesforce is investing in B2B SaaS companies how should startups and startup founders be thinking about corporate VC and how to plug into those organizations uh, to benefit their companies?
1: Yeah, I think corporate VCs, obviously that's the the world I've moved into with WPP Ventures now. It is a group and an asset that can be incredibly valuable to your company, but you have to think about it in the right way. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you're looking at a corporate VC and the only reason you're taking their money is for them to go unlock a ton of customer value for you, that's a risky bet. I mean you want somebody because of their strategic value, the expertise, other things they can deliver for you, not just because that you think that relationship is going to cause them to unlock a ton of value for you. Uh, In terms of, you know, customer deals or business development, you know, in the same token, you also need to look at what doors get opened and what doors get shut because of that corporate investment. You know, there are some corporate VCs that are so closely aligned with their companies that it does possibly shut down doors for acquisition down the road. But there's others that don't shut any doors, and that's a good thing. There are some corporate VCs that they're doing investments to almost get an option in your company for them to buy you later on. You need to ask all of those questions, not because one is necessarily better than the other. Like every VC will have a different opinion, but you need to know it. And you need to know what you're getting yourself into Because with a regular VC, you're pretty clear of what their intentions are. Uh, You need to make sure you have that same understanding with a corporate venture capitalist so you're not surprised by behaviors down the road.
0: How are you thinking differently about your investments now that you're a corporate VC as opposed to the investments you were making as an early stage investor through the Brandry accelerator that you had?
1: Yeah the the nice thing is actually there's not a whole lot of difference but it's more because of my own mindset. You know, I have always taken the approach that money is actually not really something people need and what I mean by that is there's plenty of sources of capital. You know, you can go get money from a lot of different places. And so the checks I've always written I had to be a lot more valuable than my checkbook. I needed to make sure that I could really help those companies not just by giving them my opinion on things, but bringing expertise and advice to them that comes from that expertise. And at the same token, my Rolodex needed to be their Rolodex. And I needed to really be able to deliver that value and that strategic help in whichever way they might need, whether that is business development or talent and hiring or anything else in between. And I think that's the same job for me as in the corporate VC uh, route is Why should they be taking my check versus somebody else's check? And it needs to be that exact same pay it forward karma building value that I deliver.
0: I love the approach, Dave, and I'm sure you're founders that you've invested in, uh, appreciate it as well. In fact, I've heard as much uh, as I've talked to them at various conferences all over the country where all of your brand new graduates have, have been. I'm so eager to watch this next chapter unfold for you. I'm eager to uh, refer this book uh, to more people because Predicting the Turn is a, It's not a super long read, but it's still like very much a Mind shifting and sort of paradigm shifting sort of book, and it's looking at things from a more macro level. So I hope uh, I hope listeners pick up the book. Um, I've got an extra copy, so if you want a chance to win that extra copy, please drop a comment in the show notes, which of course we'll have on powderkeg.com. But Dave, if uh, if The commenters aren't lucky enough to be the winner of this particular contest. Where can they go to get their own copy and buy multiple copies for their friends? Yeah,
1: no, I thank you for that offer. So I am going to have a special offer uh, that's going to be up on my publisher's website at ParamountBooks.com that we'll be sharing with everyone. And so I think we'll be able to put that in the podcast notes uh, with that URL and that uh, access code. And you can also get it on Amazon, but uh, direct from the publisher is a good thing. Yeah. And always happy to uh, talk with anybody that wants to uh, talk more about opportunities uh, with the book
0: thanks so much for doing that Dave I appreciate the the discount Um, it's well worth every penny to pay full price but uh, you may as well use the discount code and uh, go to paramountbooks.com to check it out or go to the show notes page and just follow the direct link Uh, we'll have the code on there for you Uh, Dave thank you so much for being on the powder keg podcast if people want to follow up with you follow your journeys maybe ask a follow-up question what's the best way to get a hold of you
1: Yes, uh, always uh, anything online. So uh, Dave.Knox at gmail.com is uh, always an easy way to do it. Uh, or tweet me at, at, at Dave Knox. But uh, would love to engage uh, in any discussions. Uh, you know, if you're ever looking for speakers or for if your corporation or startup wants somebody to come in, always happy
0: to talk and uh, love to listen and get feedback as well. So shoot it over. Awesome, Dave. Thanks again for uh, for being on here. I'll be down in Cincinnati soon. As you know, we're launching Verge Cincinnati, so uh, it'll be more reason to see each other more often. Hey, can't wait for that. Me too. That's it for our conversation with Dave Knox from WPP Ventures, but that does not have to be the end of the conversation. Make sure you hit him up on Twitter, at Dave Knox. He's a great guy, shares a ton of great information, and he's super engaged on social, so I hope you'll hit him up there. And you heard the man. We've got a great offer just for you. So use the code POWDERKEG for a special PK discount when you buy Dave's book, Predicting the Turn. Again, that's POWDERKEG, all one word. P-O-W-D-E-R-K-E-G. And make sure you check out that book. I've got an extra copy. If you drop a comment on the show notes, uh, I'll be sure to pick one of those and send you a free copy of his book. But it's well worth buying an extra copy because you're going to be gifting this all the time. And I'll tell you what. If you like this interview with Dave, you're going to love PK episode number 12. It's an interview with Rodney Williams, who made massive waves at PNG innovating within that larger company, and then went on to start his own business, Listener, which is headquartered in Cincinnati and is one of the most disruptive companies in IoT, or the Internet of Things. Again, that powder keg episode is number 12 with Rodney Williams. You're going to love it, so make sure you check that out.